Hello and welcome to the latest Guernsey Green Finance podcast rated one of the top 10 most useful sustainable finance podcasts by Green Finance Guide. Guernsey is one of the jurisdictions leading the way in green and sustainable finance and through this podcast series we'll be speaking to and learning from some of the leading global figures in the field. My name is Rosie Alsop. I'm Communications Manager at We Are Guernsey. We are the promotional agency for Guernsey's finance industry. Today on the podcast, we will be discussing our Sustainable Finance Week, which was held in Guernsey at the beginning of June. And I am delighted to be speaking today with Meredith Jones. She is the Global Head of ESG and Responsible Investing at Aon. Meredith, all of us at Guernsey Finance are delighted to be speaking with you today. And we were also so grateful to have Aon sponsor day three of Sustainable Finance Week, where the theme of the day was insurance financing sustainability. First, uh, before we kick off, I'd like to introduce you to our listeners, Meredith. How did you end up working in this area of sustainable finance? Can you tell us a bit about your backstory? Sure, and uh, thank you so much for having me on the podcast today, of course. Um, But to give you a little bit of background on me, um, I think I come from a somewhat unconventional background when it comes to sustainable finance. I've actually been in the investing world for about the last 23 years, but I started off in hedge funds, which is not the area of finance that I think people generally think of first when they're thinking about sustainable finance. Um, in addition, I, uh, I think your listeners will be able to tell pretty quickly from my accent that uh, I am from uh, the south, the southern part of the United States, uh, which is also not an area of the country I think many people associate with um, environmental and social consciousness. So uh, for a lot of people, I think they they look at me and and I look a little bit like a fish out of water. But In many ways, this is the culmination of a journey that I've been on for quite some time. Um, So obviously have, uh, like I said, have been investing for quite some time. And over the course of my investing career, I began to get uh, interested in different parts of environmental, social, and governance investing. Um, And one of the reasons for that is that when I first started out in the hedge fund industry in 1998, Um, I did not meet another woman who had a job similar to mine until 2007, so almost 10 years into my investing career. And so as a result of that, I started to look around at the diversity or lack thereof in the investment industry and became very focused on uh, gender diversity and racial and ethnic diversity in the investing space and the Um, lack of progress that was being made on that, as well as um, the benefits that would come from having more diverse participants in the investing world. From there, um, my interest continued to broaden, but always used that uh, interest in diversity as a fulcrum. And, And so when I started to look at environmental issues, for example, one of the things that I noted was that uh, women and and, uh, underrepresented minorities uh, and racial and ethnic minorities were I'm going to be disproportionately impacted by climate change. And so that uh, started my journey on uh, in the environmental arena. And so for the past 10 years or so, I have focused on uh, environmental, social, and governance issues within the investing arena. Um, and I think uh, hopefully when you hear a little bit of that backstory, it makes a little bit more sense why I'm on today's podcast. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's a really interesting thing to note um, and, and uh, to hear about and your background and coming from the South. And like you say, it, it's not what people tend to associate people who don't live in the US anyway. Um, how do you see the US and Europe and the rest of the world's focus differing on the climate agenda? Well, there definitely are regional differences. There's even regional differences within uh, li more limited geographies. So within the U.S., we definitely have a dichotomy between uh, areas like California, New York, New Jersey, um, some of the more uh, what's what's known as a blue state uh, versus what's known as the red state. So that's going to be uh, the the Midwest and the and the southern parts of the country. And that dichotomy, I think, uh, really leads to um, some impediments when it comes to trying to put policy in place um, and when it comes to trying to have coordinated action on climate change. Um, you know, I don't think that uh, sustainability and climate change is being a particularly political issue. I mean, when you think about uh, the resiliency of people and planet and the resiliency of, of business and, uh, and investment, that's kind of an apolitical situation as far as I'm concerned. But unfortunately, um, in today's political climate, it's really become something that is increasingly aligned with certain political agendas. And so as a result in the United States, for example, we tend to see um, policies flip-flop when you um, have different parties in power in the administrative and legislative branches. So for example, Barack Obama's administration had been fairly lenient when it came to um, ESG investing and, and responsible investing and, and climate change. And of course, when uh, the Trump administration came in, they made it very clear that they were uh, taking an anti-regulatory stance, um, and that culminated with the Department of Labor guidance that was provided in November of 2020 that uh, really was, I, I think probably the best word is hostile uh, when it came to implementing uh, ESG strategies and, and taking climate change into consideration. And now, of course, we have a, a new administration in yet again, and the first one of the first things they did was indicate that they weren't going to be enforcing uh, that particularly, uh, particular piece of regulatory guidance. And in fact, we're looking to um, add additional disclosures and, um, and uh, guidance around how to address uh, climate change and sustainability in ESG. So that tends to be the U.S. environment. Our neighbors to the north uh, tend to be uh, you know, somewhat uh, driven by, by what's going on in the individual provinces, but certainly some of the provinces have taken, uh, in Canada, have taken a much more aggressive stance. Um, and when you look at that uh, as a totality of North America, it, it's really a very, uh, in many ways, localized activity as opposed to Europe, for example, and the UK, where the regulatory environment is really marching investors and companies in the same direction in the same time frame. And so, um, you know, I, I think that there are a number of investors in the United States and in Canada who are who are doing great things when it comes to sustainable finance. But you don't see the same sort of consistent activity across all stakeholders um, like you do in the UK and the EU due to the, the green taxonomy and the UK stewardship requirements and the other things that are going on there. 
so I, I think in, in summation, what I am hopeful for is that as uh, Canada and the U.S. in particular and other parts of the world that maybe don't have um, comprehensive guidance around ESG and sustainable finance, that we will look to what's already out there so that we're not, we don't end up with a bunch of regimes that ultimately are gearing for the same outcome, but maybe not getting there in a way that is compatible. Because I think anytime you introduce that kind of regulatory chaos into the markets, it just makes it more difficult to have meaningful and sustained progress. So, so I'm hoping that, uh, that over the course of the Biden administration, uh, that, uh, that we will be taking some cues from, from the good work that the UK and, and EU have already done. Well, let's hope so, because consistency does seem to be a very sensible way forward. Um, now, we saw from across all the panel sessions on Thursday at Sustainable Finance Week that the insurance industry is going to be hugely impacted by climate change. Um, how do you see it currently impacting the industry, Meredith? Well, I think there's a number of things that are going on right now. Um, number one, in the in the sphere of underwriting, obviously climate change is impacting uh, the frequency and severity of, of natural disasters. Um, and of course, that means that we are having more frequent and bigger disasters, but it also means that we are having more frequent and uh, I guess I would call them mid-sized uh, disasters. And so the industry, I think, has always been very adept at trying to, at predicting um, the major uh, natural uh, catastrophes, the, you know, the big hurricanes, the, you know, the, the big droughts, things like that. Um, but, the, but the more frequent, more moderate-sized uh, disasters that happen, I, I think that's something that the industry is still trying to uh, wrap its head around. And, and, you know, I look at where I live, for example, and, and in the course of 12 months, obviously, um, we had COVID, as everyone else did, um, but we also had a, a massive dare show. We had a tornado that went through town. We had a massive ice storm, and we had historic flooding. Um, and so, you know, that's that's a lot of um, of uh, like I said, frequency and uh, and disasters for for um, property in particular, property and casualty to have to take into consideration. The other thing from the underwriting perspective is, you know, there is some evidence that shows that um, companies that do a better job at managing their ESG and sustainability risks will have um, less payment of insured losses. So I do see uh, more frequently these days that insurers are starting to think about how they can evaluate their policyholders to see how well they are, uh, how well or how poorly they're incorporating ESG. So if you think about it, you know, if, if a company has poor uh, environmental, social and governance practices, that's going to impact everything from DNO. Uh, policies to workers' comp to property and casualty to errors and omission—it's it, kind of the whole ball game. And so I, I see insurers really wrestling with that uh, at, the, at this moment in time. On the investment side of things, you know, obviously investment portfolios need to be as resilient as uh, humanly possible and and uh, protect against volatility in order to make it possible to pay out uh, any claims that are uh, that are made. And so we see an increasing number of insurers who are looking at their investment portfolios and trying to figure out how they can um, integrate ESG and sustainability and climate change into their portfolios in a meaningful way. 
we've been working on a number of different climate change scenarios that we can apply against investment portfolios to give a sense of how they might um, how that might impact the long-term viability of the asset allocation in those portfolios. And then finally, I think right now we also see a lot of insurers who are looking uh, not just at the risk, but the opportunity that is out there. Um, insurers and reinsurers have a tremendous opportunity to be part of the solution when it comes to sustainability and climate change, whether that is through uh, innovative financing methods, whether that is through um, encouraging the policyholders that they work with to adopt better ESG practice. Um, but I, I definitely see a lot of product innovation um, and a lot of ways that um, insurers are thinking creatively about how they can really facilitate uh, a transition to a more sustainable economy. Now, I'm going to ask you to do a bit of crystal ball gazing. How different do you think the insurance industry is going to look in the next 10 years, particularly compared with the previous 10? Well, I think, you know, we're definitely going to see um, we've always insurance industry has always been pretty good at physical risk modeling, as I mentioned. But I do think that the climate change models uh, for natural disaster are going to have to get a lot better. And we'll see um, we'll see a lot more reliance on that. But in addition, um, something that I don't think the insurance industry has been focused as focused on is uh, the issue of transition risk. And so I think that that's a conversation that will um, be happening now um, and will continue to get integrated into the various processes at insurance companies uh, going forward. Another thing that I think uh, we'll, we are likely to see is that um, a lot of insurers have uh, been very focused on um, things like not engaging with coal or tartan and things like that. Um, you know, there are a lot of potential unintendances from just cutting off uh, insurance to certain segments of, uh, of the energy markets, um, particularly in the event, uh, you know, if you look at some of the developing economies and things like that, what you can't insure, you actually can't, uh, you know, people can't invest in and you can't sustain. And so I think we're going to have to take a closer look at how we interact with uh, the, the energy and renewables markets so that, again, we can be a facilitator of change rather than, you know, just kind of bringing the hammer down on things. Um, and then finally, I think, you know, as we look out, really looking at things like the carbon uh, credit markets and things like that, I think insurers will be uh, massive participants in uh, the voluntary carbon markets. And so I expect that to be a particularly uh, robust line of business as well. Okay. So how much of this change is being driven by public policy versus investor and consumer demand? And uh, what do you think regulatory bodies and governments should be focusing on? Well, and I think that goes back to the question of where where are you looking, right? So if you look at the UK and the EU, I think quite a bit of the change is being driven uh, by uh, governments and regulatory bodies. If you look at uh, the US and Canada, well, I think a lot of the pressure is actually coming from shareholders and other stakeholders uh, of the organization. Um, I, I think it's actually going to take a concerted effort from both of those uh, parties, as well as from uh, all of the different uh, constituent groups for, um, for insurers and other companies. You know, employees have a role to play because uh, particularly as we see millennials and Gen Z become a dominant force in the workforce, 
they're saying very clearly that they want the people that they work for to uh, to be the good guys when it comes to sustainability and climate change. And so that puts pressure on companies. Um, certainly public opinion uh, and, and PR risk and, and things like that um, definitely play a role as well. When I think about the, the role that regulatory bodies and governments uh, should have in this, I do think that um, getting consistent uh, disclosure and transparency is one of the best things uh, that can happen. Because in the absence of that, like I said, we definitely see changes happening in the US that are driven mostly by shareholders, but those shareholders aren't always uh, adept at getting folks to uh, focus on the same risks and, and disclose information in the same way. And regulatory requirement requirements around that can be much more effective um, so I think, you know, from my perspective, um, that's one of the best things that, uh, that a regulatory uh, body or government could focus on. What does the disclosure look like? What is the transparency so that people can make informed decisions about what they're investing in um, so that there is no question uh, about what, what some uh, terminology and disclosures, what they mean and don't mean? Mm-hmm. Now, a big theme from the whole of Sustainable Finance Week was the role of governance and reporting. Um, Meredith, what do you think good sustainable investor reporting and governance looks like? Well, you know, I I think that um, I I am generally uh, in favor of a lot of the different regimes that are out there. So the SASB, the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, I think is a a great tool, Um, but I also... I guess I'm a little bit old school and uh, and like the global reporting initiative as well. I think they they kind of focus on different things. You know, SASB is looking mostly at things that you can put a number around. And, and I, I think that is incredibly important to, to prevent greenwashing and, and to get uh, specificity in the reporting. But at the same time, um, I also believe that the intention of, uh, of firms is really important. And so looking at policies and procedures and, and uh, the governance of particular initiatives is really important as well. And, and that's not something that you can really capture in a number. Um, I definitely think that um, TCFD, uh, the Task Force for Climate Related Financial Disclosure is an incredibly useful tool um, I, I think that um, at this point in time, the amount of latitude in that tool, uh, in that particular regime, allows for um, a lot of variation in reporting. Um, so I'm hoping that that's something that gets tightened up over time. Um, and again, I'm going to say I'm a little old school. Um, the CDP, because it has a more question-based uh, approach to disclosures, I think it forces companies to um, to at least answer very specific questions. And so, again, it gives that um, that information that is easily comparable across firms. Um, so I, I, I hope that over time that, uh, that all of those regimes will, will end up melding into something that is unambiguous about what's required in the disclosures and uh, is something that is achievable for companies to be able to, to do on a, on a regular basis because, again, the more the more uniform closures are, the better it is for investors to be able to make comparisons and decisions about they, you know, what kind of activities they want to be involved in. The other thing on that too is um, obviously the issue of um, impact reporting. 
that's an area where I don't think there is a ton of, of good guidance. And so, you know, from my perspective on the, on the responsible investment side, I tend to see stuff that's all over the map uh, on that. And so, um, you know, I, I generally apply at this point a, a very uh, basic theory of change model in, uh, in impact analysis. Um, but I am hoping that the industry, uh, as sustainable finance becomes something that more and more groups focus on, will be more adept at getting, again, a repeatable, uniform way of looking at the impact of, uh, of the different uh, investments that are made. Yeah, so it's that consistency thing again, isn't it? Yep. So, uh, so much of the discussion in the climate finance is around climate mitigation. Uh, how do you see the insurance industry balancing the desire to mitigate climate change with the need to prepare for climate change events by building in resilience and disaster protection? Well, the, on the mitigation side, you know, again, I think we've already seen a number of insurers who are backing away from uh, from industries which have a dis proportionate uh, negative uh, impact on uh, the uh, carbon and carbon equivalent emissions in the atmosphere. And so that is something that um, I think will continue to happen. But at the same time, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I'm very hopeful that perhaps insurers, rather than just um, using uh, a stick uh, to, to accomplish that, will also figure out ways to use a carrot. How can you encourage uh, the folks that uh, that you are insuring to engage in mitigation activities to lower the carbon and carbon equivalent uh, footprint. I think that's a really, uh, insurers could be a, a incredibly impactful there, much in the same way that we've seen on, uh, on the straight financing side with ESG KPI linked bonds, uh, green bonds, uh, sustainability linked bonds. Uh, and and credit facilities that focus around that too. That you know that I think is a is an incredibly useful tool, and I look forward to hopefully figuring out ways to to use that on the insurance side of the table as well. Um, from a from a preparedness situation, again, I th I think that we uh, that the insurance industry is really having to look at innovative ways to partner up with different organizations to, um, to respond to disasters that are already happening. Um, and that can be anything from, uh, you know, build back greener type of initiatives, um, you know, working with municipalities to, um, to uh, this is something I mentioned during the, the climate discussion that we had during Sustainable Finance Week, um, you know, working with municipalities to ensure in the event of a, a natural disaster that they are, um, that their budgets are protected so that they can continue to provide uh, essential services to, uh, to the members of their community while they're hopefully building back greener. Um, so I think there, there are a lot of different ways uh, to participate. Um, the carbon uh, credit market I've already mentioned, I think that's something where um, insurers are definitely going to have a role at um, helping to protect natural assets, which is not something that we've necessarily written a lot of cover on in the past. Um, but it's something that we will need to do because if if folks are, for example, planting a uh, a, a bunch of trees in order to help to offset part of their carbon footprint, and those trees, uh, those trees are still uh, subject to natural disaster risk. You know, how are we protecting those types of things? Um, so, like I said, I, I think it's it's a there are a lot of things in the mitigation uh, space, and and a lot of things that we can do to help communities 
focus not just on mitigation, but on resiliency. For sure. Now, in your role, you look at ESG, impact investing, and responsible investing. Uh, what would you say, where are you seeing the biggest growth at the moment? And how can investors tell which opportunities are going to make the biggest difference? And which sectors, in your view, represent uh, a good opportunity? So I definitely see ESG as the biggest growth area. Um, it is increasingly becoming the table stakes for a lot of different investors. Um, you know, ESG and our and our taxonomy of of um, of terms in this space is a values neutral approach that is focused solely on the identification and mitigation of pre-financial risks and opportunities that uh, that may face a particular company. So there don't have to be decisions about do we divest from one thing or another? How do we how do we deal with specific controversies? Um, and given the the breadth of constituents that um, institutional investors have to serve, that can be a very uh, good way to get into the responsible investment mode, but do it again from a from a risk identification and mitigation point of view. The the great thing about ESG is that even though it is primarily a, a risk identification and mitigation tool, it also has the side benefit of being good for people and planet. So if if you're thinking about, for example, a manufacturing company. Um, and that manufacturing company is taking steps to reduce their carbon emissions and uh, their wastewater uh, production and, and things like that, that is good for the company. It is a, it is a risk mitigation issue for the company in that um, they are uh, reducing their spend on energy potentially, which it goes to the bottom line. Uh, they are reducing their susceptibility to regulatory fines and penalty for um, any type of waste that they're putting out or any type of emissions that they're putting out. So that's a good thing. They are minimizing uh, their exposure to potential litigation, uh, which is a good thing because you know any any litigation costs money to actually you know have the court case. But also, if you lose, obviously that can that can be quite expensive as well. So that's all very beneficial to a company's bottom line. And it's all very focused on risk management. But of course, the companies that do that are having a side benefit for um, you know, the, the planet because they're putting less hazardous um, um, emissions into the air or into the water system or what have you. It's also good for the people around uh, that particular firm because the, the communities are in a, in a better position as well. So that, I think, is very appealing to a lot of investors. Um, we also see, I think, quite a lot of discussion around impact investing. Uh, people are, uh, the investors that we talk to are looking for ways to not just uh, potentially uh, mitigate risk, but how can they have a positive impact on people and planet from, uh, from the perspective of their investment portfolio. Now, the issue here has been, I think the interest is much greater than the actual capacity has been historically. Um, and so we're starting to see more and more investment products that are focused on impact investing to, uh, I think, uh, that will harness a lot of the interest that we're seeing. Um, but up until this point, um, I would say interest has definitely outstripped, uh, outstripped the ability to deploy capital and impact strategies. And then finally, we are definitely having a lot of conversations about decarbonization and divestment from fossil fuels. 
Um, we are a huge proponent of decarbonization. Uh, we obviously think that that's something that's incredibly important for everybody to be doing. Um, but at, divestment is a little trickier because at the end of the day, I would almost rather see shareholders that um, are invested in engaging with companies to get them to make changes to the way that they do business and, and um, really make, again, that seamless transition to a greener economy, then have all of the investors who care pull out and just leave the investors who are in it strictly for the returns. Um, so we generally are targeted divestment to the extent that a company is willing and able to make changes. Uh, we think that, um, and, and can prove that they are making changes. Um, we are generally supportive of staying invested with those companies. Uh, for companies that are willing, unwilling or unable to make change, uh, that's where we think that divestment makes a lot more sense. Um, but, but overall, like I said, I would say ESG is number one, impact investing is number two, and uh, divestment and socially responsible investing is number three. Okay. Now, you mentioned it at the start of the podcast. Uh, you've spoken a lot about women and investing and the importance of diversity and inclusion. Um, Meredith, how do you think this fits in with the broader ESG agenda? Well, that's a great question. I mean, this is an area that I am incredibly passionate about. Um, I, I focus on it quite a bit in my day job and, and um serve on a number of uh, volunteer organizations that are focused on, on this issue as well. Um, I do think that diversity and inclusion are something that um, has the potential to unlock uh, economic value for everybody from Wall Street to Main Street. And so I, I definitely see a, uh, an investment reason to focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, I also see that there are demographic shifts that are happening uh, globally, which mean that uh, women and uh, racial and ethnic minorities are going to be a bigger and bigger part of uh, the local and global economy. And so making sure that, um, that everyone is included is something that is incredibly important. But, you know, the reason that I, I think that there is so much uh, unlocked, uh, um, un unexplored at this point potential when it comes to diversity is that there is a ton of research that shows that diverse groups do better at problem solving. And we've got some big problems that we need to address here. Um, and so as a result of that, you know, it, it, if you were just looking at it from the perspective of, you know, the financial system should be inclusive of everyone, you know, that's one reason to focus on it. If you're looking at it from a return enhancement standpoint, there's plenty of research that shows that diversity within uh, uh, within companies and within investment portfolios can be uh, beneficial to corporate financial performance and returns. And thirdly, the, the reason that that happens is because, again, there's enhanced problem solving. And, and so um, I think that you cannot have a discussion about ESG um, and sustainability without addressing the, the issue of diversity, equity, and inclusion. I couldn't agree more. Uh, and, and like you say, there is a ton of research out there that shows uh, diverse groups are better at problem solving. So it's it's not a, uh, a nice to have. It's a, you know, why aren't you doing it kind of point, really. Well, um, and I 
Um, you know, and I, I think that's a really interesting point. One of my favorite pieces of research around diversity uh, was a study that looked at the performance of homogenous and diverse groups. And homogenous groups rated their performance at doing difficult tasks as better, but actually performed the task worse. And diverse groups rated their, uh, their performance on the task as worse, but actually did a better job. And so I think in many ways, when you have people that have differing opinions and backgrounds and points of view and are bringing new things to the table, it can be uncomfortable, but actually the juicy goodness of diversity comes from that discomfort. And so I am hopeful uh, that now, uh, particularly uh, 2020, when the conversation really shifted to uh, diversity and equity and inclusion from, in large part, the George Floyd and Breonna Taylor murders, um, that people will be willing to embrace whatever levels of discomfort in order to get to all of the great benefits that we see from diversity. I'm, I'm loving that piece of uh, that research that you've just pointed to. <laughs> I'm going to have to uh, speak to you offline and um, pick up where I can find that. Uh, so my final question for you, Meredith, we're also seeing a growing awareness of the need to consider biodiversity. What, in your view, are some of the difficulties when trying to build biodiversity into a portfolio? Do you have any case studies of biodiversity being done well? So, you know, I think everything about sustainability is not linear and can be difficult. You know, like I said, I just highlighted that diversity, equity and inclusion, you know, if it was easy, we would have solved it already. Um, if climate change was easy and, and linear, I think we would have solved it already. I mean, the the investing and finance industry is, is full of a lot of really smart people um, and it's their job to, to address these things. Biodiversity is another issue where I think, you know, it is a it is a more complex thing than than we generally tend to think about. Obviously, it is critical to the survival of people and planet. I mean, when you just look at pollinators, for example, the the issues around honeybees, you know, that is that is something that we need to be focused on if if we're going to be able to feed ourselves in the future. And yet it's not a straightforward situation, you know, much like the whole, uh, the conversation around coal. Yes, we all agree that coal is bad, but we also know that there are communities that are highly dependent on coal-fired power generation. And so you can't just say, you know, we're cutting this off cold turkey and I'm sorry you can't have a hospital in your community anymore because you don't have electricity. There's always those kinds of trade-offs to be made. And I think with biodiversity, we, we see a lot of the same thing. You know, you can, um, there's, there was a study, for example, that uh, on, the, on the pollinator issue that showed that if you, uh, if the U.S., for example, were to plant a lot of sunflowers, that that is a good source of uh, nutrition for honeybees and would be beneficial to honeybees. But the unfortunate part is that um, there are other parts of the, um, of the bee ecosystem that would be negatively impacted by that. Um, same thing when you start looking at, uh, at coastal uh, areas, you know, if you um, start to preserve certain areas and um, you have uh, herbivore fish that come in and suddenly they have great amounts of food and so they overpopulate and they, they eat your mangrove or whatever, you know, there, there is definitely a, a balance here that we are all trying to get back to. And I'm not sure that, um, that there have been um, you know, there haven't been enough great case studies uh, to really point to, but I think 
technology is something that's going to help quite a bit. Um, we're seeing folks who are um, looking at areas and, and able to uh, grade the biodiversity based on water samples and DNA taken from the soil and things like that. Um, I think blockchain has a, has a role to play here. So uh, I look forward to all of those uh, really smart people that I just mentioned uh, that exist in investing in finance, figuring out a way to uh, holistically address some of these problems so that hopefully we can avoid some of the unintended consequence that goes with any action that may be taken. Yeah, I think you're right. We just need all those really smart people to uh, step forward and decide on a consistent approach <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and get us out of this mess. So that's uh, that's all our time for that. All we have time for today with Meredith. Thank you so much uh, for speaking with us. I mean, there were too many interesting points for me to just uh, highlight one. Um, we have quite a back catalogue of interviews and panel discussions on the Guernsey Green Finance podcast, and you can check them out by searching for Guernsey Green Finance wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us at guernseygreenfinance.org and we are guernsey.com. You can interact with us on Twitter at Guernsey Green Finance and at We Are Guernsey. We also have links to Meredith and Aeon's social media in our show notes, so check those out to hear more from them. You can also watch our Sustainable Finance Week on demand now on our website, and that's presented in association with the United Nations Financial Centres for Sustainability. And we'll be back soon with another edition of the Guernsey Green Finance podcast.